I want you to take your Bible and I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter number one. I want to read a portion of scripture. I'm not going to be preaching directly from this passage, but it it introduces a theme that uh, we're going to be considering this morning. Uh, And that uh, that theme is a question. Is it really worth it? Ephesians chapter number one. And I'm going to begin reading in verse number 15. The Apostle Paul is being Uh, used by God to pin a message to a church that he had planted in the city of Ephesus. And he writes to them in verse 15, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet, And gave him to be head over all things to the church which is his body. The fullness of him that filleth all in all. Well, let's take our Bibles and you might want to turn to Ephesians. There is one verse there we'll be touching on in a moment. In Ephesians chapter uh, number one. There's a book that was written back in the 1600s, that happens to be uh, the known as, acclaimed as the second uh, bestseller, number two bestseller in the English language throughout the history of the English language, second only to the Bible itself. And that book is Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress was written by a preacher who was in prison in Bedford, England, because of his preaching contrary to the uh, law and requirements of the British crown. And uh, the room off to your right is named for him, John Bunyan, and uh, commemorating that he uh, was faithful in preaching the truth of God, regardless of the, the mandates from the from the government uh, of his day. And uh, we honor him for the, uh, for the life that he lived, the convictions that he held, that he was willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. So he wrote the book Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, what a great book. I hope you've read Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said he, wrote, he read it once a year for 50 years. He read it once a year for 50 years. That's how much he thought 
of the value of Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress is saturated with the Word of God. Because John Bunyan spent so much time sitting in jail reading his Bible. And so what he wrote, he is just filled with scripture quotations and with scriptural principles and truths. Just saturated with the truth of the Word of God. And so Charles Haddon Spurgeon uh, read that book every year uh, because of the spiritual value, the biblical value of that book. Statisticians who've studied uh, Spurgeon's preaching, and Charles Haddon Spurgeon has been acclaimed as probably the uh, the best known, the, the most influential Baptist preacher in history. Certainly he was in his day in London, England, began pastoring the Metropolitan Baptist Tabernacle at age 19 and uh, pastored that church uh, for, for the rest of his life. Statisticians who've studied Spurgeon's sermons have noted that he mentioned Pilgrim's Progress and a character in Pilgrim's Progress in every third sermon, statistically every third sermon for his entire ministry. He was constantly referring to, to something in Pilgrim's Progress to illustrate a principle and truth of the Word of God. I want to do that this morning. I don't do that every third sermon, and I certainly haven't read it 50 times from cover to cover, but I've read it numerous times, studied it. We preached for two years through Pilgrim's Progress here on Wednesday nights years ago, and, and I fell in love at a new level. And I think as I look through Pilgrim's Progress, and I think through Pilgrim's Progress, the character in Pilgrim's Progress that made the most impact on me was a man by the name of Shame. Now, Pilgrim's Progress is all about the progress of a pilgrim. It's the life story of an unsaved person living in the city of destruction who read the Bible and became convinced that his city was going to be destroyed by fire. And so it began, he began a quest to find out how to escape the city of destruction. And that quest led him to the cross of Calvary where he got saved. And Pilgrim's Progress is about the process of conviction, seeking God, the power of the gospel, converting him, and then the obstacles he encountered in his journey through this world on his way to the celestial city. And it ends with him dying and arriving in the celestial city. So it's a book about life as a Christian, how we got saved, what we encounter as Christian people. What our challenges and obstacles are. And this pilgrim, Christian, uh, met up with another fellow pilgrim by the name of Faithful. Faithful was a faithful pilgrim who'd gotten saved and was on his way to the celestial city as well. And they encountered one another and enjoyed fellowship together. And once that when they encountered one another, Christian asked Faithful, what he'd been, what's been happening in his life? What's been occurring in your experience as a Christian? He said, I ran into a guy named Shame. And, and this, this guy named Shame began to mock me as a Christian. Began to shame me for things in my life as a Christian. This, this man called Shame did his best to make me feel ashamed of myself because of what I believe. 
because of what I do and because of what I don't do. And then, to my amazement, in reading Pilgrim's Progress, I began to study the nine things that shame shamed faithful for. Things that he did in his life as a Christian. Things that he believed in. Things that he practiced. Things that he wouldn't do. And shame mocked him and said, you actually do this? You actually believe this? And named nine things that he shamed faithful for. You may wonder what those nine things are. Well, here's the first uh, first five of them coming up on the screen. He shamed faithful for having a gentle spirit. The Bible talks about that faithful spirit, that gentle spirit in Philippians 2. He shamed him for having a lack of passion for success in this world. That's interesting. Faithful didn't seem to have a passion for success in this world because, number three, he was living for eternity rather than for now. Which, in more modern times, uh, created the little cliché You're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. You're so living for eternity that you seem to lack a passion for success in this world. And then number four, that he lived economically so that he had the resources to finance the kingdom of God. The world would mock you if they knew what you gave financially to to propagate a, a false story about a would-be religious zealot who died on a cross 2,000 years ago, and you give how much money to propagate this phony story? I'd be ashamed if I did that. And shame tried to make faithful ashamed of that. And then rejecting modern science theory if it contradicted the Bible. We're talking 1600s. 1600s. John Bunyan saw this happening in the churches. He saw the... The people unsaved in the community shaming the church members if they didn't accept the latest scientific theory that contradicted the word of God. But rather they believed the Bible over man's science and theories. And then going to church on the next screen. Going to church and sitting and listening to a sermon? Why don't you go to a ball game? You, you, get, you get some kind of a morbid joy sitting in a room and listening to some guy talk about something that we don't even know ever happened? You've got to be crazy. And shame would shame the church members, the Christians, for sitting in church listening to sermons. And then having a forgiving spirit. I mean, you forgave them for, why don't you just tell them to grow up? You, you actually say you're sorry and, and, you, and you ask forgiveness? And then sensitivity toward what he considered trivial sins. You mean you're bothered by that? You mean you feel, you feel uneasy about doing that? You feel uneasy about watching that? You feel... 
You feel there's something wrong with being engaged in that? That's trivial. That's nothing. And the unsaved shamed the Christian because they seem to be sensitive toward what the world would consider a trivial sin. And then finally, the last, the ninth one, was you care about that nobody? Who cares about that person in the middle of the Amazon rainforest? What do you care? You, you care about that person who... And the world would mock the Christians for having compassion toward those that they considered to be insignificant. You see, shame considered that the living of the Christian life is out of touch with our culture and our society. And this is the 1600s. You know, reading Pilgrim's Progress will cause you to realize that things don't change from generation to generation. The issues are the same. The realities are the same. We just painted a different color. And it seems new. But it's all the same. Generation after generation. It continues to be the same. And so shame would consider that living a Christian life is so out of touch with our world. It's so out of touch with the way everyone else lives. You ought to be ashamed living like that. You ought to be ashamed doing those things. You ought to be ashamed not doing those things. You ought to be ashamed of yourself for being so holier than thou. And, and just not being real like the rest of us. 1600s. Shaming Christian people for trying to live the Christian life. Well, I, I really don't think that's all, all that much different than today. I think the characters of Pilgrim's Progress are all alive and well in our world today. And they're all living out the caricature that John Bunyan assigned to them as he wrote his book, Pilgrim's Progress. You see, at the bottom of so much of that, it seems to me that... That shame was asking the question, is it really worth living that kind of a life? Is it really worth it to be able to live so differently than the world around you? Is it really worth it to be the kind of person you're trying to be? Is it really worth it? I think that is a question that is, um, that is a, a powerful question that, uh, that is alive and well today. You see, I grew up in a, in a, in a, in a day where, where things that we took, that my generation took for granted, um, are no longer taken for granted by Christian people. Uh, I grew up in a generation where a, a church culture was much more robust than a church culture is in Western culture today and in America today. You know, church is costly. To be a team member always costs the team member something. You... Join up a team to play on a baseball little league or a basketball club or any kind of a sports or in the arts, uh, some kind of a, a, a musical. You know, when you join a group, 
It costs you something. There are requirements. There's expectations. And when God formed his team, he calls it an ecclesia, a symboled together group of people. When God forms his team and I join that team, joining that team makes some demands of me from my God. And it's costly to be able to be a productive team member on that team. And I think some today are prone to ask the question, is it really worth it? And so some people, some even that grow up in Christianity, perhaps save people who have grown up in church, at some point in time begin to ask themselves the question, is it really worth it? I mean, for me, in, in, in my experience, it was the Lord's day was all day long. It wasn't the Lord's hour. We didn't call it the Lord's hour. We didn't even call it the Lord's morning. We called it the Lord's day. And the things of God's team occupied the vast majority of the entire day. But it didn't just occupy the first day of the week. It involved things during the week. Efforts, timing, planning, meetings, prayer meetings, outreach. Uh, there were things that occurred through the week that as a team member, it cost us something to be a team member. And I think what shame was asking faithful is it really worth it? And listed nine things that were, that were uh, well known as things Christians did that Shane was wondering if it's really worth it to be involved in that team and to, to do all those things. Because it's costly. It's costly in time to be a member of a team. It's costly in... Uh, in, in skills and talents that are, that are used to be able to further the endeavor of that team, to accomplish the goal that that team came together for the purpose of accomplishing. And money, my goodness gracious, the money that that team involves. It's costly to be a member of God's body of believers that he forms into a unit and calls it one of his churches. It's costly to be a part of God's team. And I think the questions that, that come out of shame's experience with faithful are questions that are viable for us to ask ourselves and to help our young people and upcoming generations to ask themselves. Is it worth the time? Is it worth the, the skills and talents and abilities that God has gifted you with to pour those voluntarily into the accomplishment of this team and what its goal is? Is it worth all the money it's going to cost you to live more frugally than the average worldling lives in order to be able to invest in this team effort to get the gospel all over the world? Is it really Worth it. Well, we're approaching our 25th anniversary. 
for the next few Sundays from now till our anniversary celebration, the first Sunday of October, I'm going to be speaking on themes that have to do with our life and history as a church family as we lead up to our celebration. And this morning I'm asked the question, asking the question, is it really worth it, this work, this endeavor that we call involvement in church? I was reading something, a blog that came across my desk this last week. It was an interesting little a little article, I think it was in the New York, um, New York Times or something. I'm, I'm not sure. It was a secular paper. But it was, it was dealing with the business world and how that the business world during the COVID era has found that they have lost some valuable things by losing their office presence, by people working from home and even with Zoom meetings and not having face-to-face office together in their business environment, that they have lost some things that they're struggling to know how to deal with. And that, that the entrepreneurial spirit in America, you know, that has spun out, spinning out of that has been some endeavors to create uh, pastors for the office world. Uh, people that will Come in and find out what you're missing by the in-person, face-to-face, person-to-person involvement of life that was valuable in moving your business forward. How can we replace that? One particular person who contributed to the article after studying some of these startups and what they're doing and, and what they call them, they're all called with spiritual kind of terminology, and they're all dealing with spiritual kind of, uh, of, of, uh, of life. Uh, and one person said, after looking through all that and being engaged that, he says, I stood back and I thought, you know, what we've lost is what we all had in common in our little country church I grew up in. What God's team provided naturally, we've lost. And they're trying to find a substitute for church. They're trying to find a way to provide in a secular environment what church used to provide in a spiritual environment. It was an interesting take on where America is in its, in its life today. It was interesting. Somehow along the line, we became divorced from the, the, uh, the bedrock of truth and replaced it with emotion that became prominent and truth became secondary. Listen to... One of the great Christian philosophers who died this past year. A one-minute clip by Ravi Zacharias. I believe the church has got to do a lot of soul-searching. Somewhere in the last 20 years, we have bought into the philosophy that we need to cater only to the emotional faculty of our believers. And so we manufacture feelings in our churches. We manufacture emotions in our churches. 
Feeling has come unhinged from the mind and belief. Feelings are a powerful thing, but they should follow belief, not create belief. And in our churches, this whole move towards this emotional celebratory stance that is born in doctrinal vacuum, where the person knows less and less of why they believe what they believe, but more and more of how ecstatic they are because of it, has been a dangerous amputation that has taken place. You take an average young person from almost any place today, an average Christian young person, and ask them on the fundamental questions of God, man, sin, salvation, future, and so on, I think you'd be shocked at how little we actually do know. And I think we need to do some soul searching here. What are we preparing our young people with? Because whatever you win them with is what you win them to. And so the church needs to evaluate its worship and its theology of worship. Not an absence of emotion, but emotion in its proper place. Not downplaying the importance of emotion, but recognizing the danger of emotion that does not erupt out of doctrinal truth. One thing you'll always notice as you read the Psalms is, and I don't know of any exceptions, but I know I I see it all the time when I read the Psalms, when we are told to praise, to sing, to celebrate, to express our emotional uh, feelings about God, it always is followed up with the word for, for this reason. And then gives doctrinal, foundational truths about the character and person of God out from which erupt our emotions. But when you see people with emotional celebration and then ask them about the God that they're supposed to be celebrating, they don't even know anything about him. And their understanding of truth and doctrine and theology is so shallow. That's what Ravi Zacharias was bemoaning in Western culture Christianity. Not the lack of emotion, but the fact that emotion is not emerging from truth. And the importance of truth being foundational. The last verse we read a moment ago expresses that that Jesus Christ is head over all things to the church which is his body. And then he describes the church. And this is one of the most amazing descriptions and statements of who we are as Community Baptist Church. We are the fullness of him that filleth all in all. He describes God as the one who fills all in all. Everything is about God. God fills the universe with his presence and his truth. And one day, the knowledge of Jehovah God will cover this planet Earth just like the oceans cover over the seabeds. I mean, that is total saturation. And one day, everyone that lives in every country, on every continent, in every state, in every city, in every village, in every people group around the world, will know Jehovah God and be saturated with his truth. That's our God. That's what's in front of us one day. He is the one who fills all in all. But did you notice how he describes Community Baptist Church? 
we who are an assembly of body parts formed together to be able to do the work that the head has assigned to us during our time on earth, we are the fullness, we are the fullness of the one who fills everything. God fills everything. And you are his fullness. You are the one that brings to completion his presence in Northern Virginia. You are the one that promotes and propagates the fullness of what he wants in the place in which we live. You are the fullness of the one who fills everything. So when you ask yourself the question, is it really worth it? A day of the week plus a couple of other evenings, the money involved. And, uh, you know, I've got some skills and talents. And so, I, and so uh, to, to use those skills and talents in the propagating of the work of God's church. And, and, and I add all this stuff up. It's costly to be a member of a church. And I would agree with you. It is very costly. To be a member of a church. Is it worth it? You know when you evaluate. An investment. Whether an investment is worth it or not. Will always be judged. By the ROI. What is the return on my investment? If I invest in this. What am I going to get out of it? What is going to be the result of that which I invest? Now, if I don't know if it's going to be, you know, a very big ROI, then then I'm not going to probably invest very much. But if I have a guaranteed ROI that just makes my eyes open wide. Well, like Jesus told the story about the guy that was walking through a field and he happened upon a treasure buried in the field. He realized that he could own that field. He would own what's in the field. That means if he could own that field, he would own the treasure that's buried in the field. So he went out and he sold everything else that he owned. He liquidated everything that he had. And he bought that land because he was guaranteed an ROI that was going to go far beyond what he invested. And he invested everything because the return on investment was a guaranteed big return on investment. Now let me ask the question. Is the investment of your life in church worth the investment? Now I want to suggest to you there's two places that loom out in front of us, of everybody, that answers that question. One of them is recorded, and I, I put the verses there uh, References, uh, because I knew we wouldn't have time to go into each of them uh, in great clarity. So I gave you the references or whatever interest that might have to you in your, your devotions this week and Bible reading. But the first one, as you probably know, is the great white throne. The great white throne judgment. You know, there's two places and events that are in front of us. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, but after this... A time of accountability for the life we live before we die, right? It's appointed a man wants to die, and after this, the judgment. And so we know we're going to die, 
None of us are getting out of this thing alive. We, we, we know we're going to die. It's appointed to us to die unless we are, are blessed to be one of those, uh, that minute special club uh, that is alive when the rapture occurs and, and we don't have to die. But outside of that possibility, we're all going to die. And we know beyond any shadow of a doubt that after we die, there will be a time of accountability to God for what happened before we die. And there's two possible accountabilities. And the first one is the great white throne judgment. And the church exists to make sure you miss that accountability. Community Baptist Church exists for the purpose of making sure you miss that experience. Revelation chapter 20 talks about that great white, great white throne judgment. And the Bible says that death and hell will deliver up the dead which are in them. Death, speaking of the dead bodies. Hell, speaking of the dead souls. The dead bodies and dead souls of people will be reunited and will stand before the great white throne judgment of God. And there at the great white throne judgment, the Bible says that there will be many books that are written... And each individual will be judged out of the things written in all of those books. And those books are the books that record the deeds, the life, the lifestyle, the sins of, of that person. And they're going to be judged out of, they're going to give an account for the life that they lived. And after they're judged according to their works. According to their life, their lifestyle, their actions, their thought life, once they've been judged out of the books, plural, the books, some are going to argue. Some are going to say, I don't deserve to go to hell. What do you mean I have to go to hell? Because that passage speaks and says that, that they're going to be cast into the lake which burned with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And there's people going to be arguing with God. And so God will go over to a singular book, and he will open the singular book, and that singular book has recorded in it the names of all those who got saved. And he's going to use that book not to judge them, but to prove to them that their name is not written in the book of life. This is an accountability that the church exists to keep people away from. A guy by the name of, of Austin Miles wrote a, uh, a gospel song back in the 1800s entitled, There's a New Name Written Down in Glory. It goes like this, I was once a sinner, but I came pardoned to receive from my Lord. This was freely given, and I found that he always kept his word. I was humbly kneeling at the cross, fearing not that God's angry frown. When the heavens opened and I saw that my name was written down in a book, tis written, saved by grace. Oh, the joy that came to my soul. Now I am forgiven and I know by the blood I am made whole. There's a new name written down in glory and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. And the white robed angels sing the story. A sinner has come home. For there's a new name written down in glory and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. With my sins forgiven, I am bound for heaven, never more to roam. 
We exist as a church to keep people out of the great white throne judgment. Jesus Christ said to the disciples, he had sent them out evangelizing. They came back and they said, they were telling what happened and how the, even the spirits of, 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 of demons were subject to them. And, and, and Jesus looked at them and said, Notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the angels are sub, or that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. That's the thing worth rejoicing over. If you're saved and you're going to miss the great white throne judgment and you're not going to be judged according to your works before you're cast into hell. If your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, understand that the church exists to be able to take the message to people that can make that true in their lives. And two men yesterday, two of our men yesterday were out giving out little true life cards. They gave out somewhere between 100 and 150 true life cards through the neighborhoods. That they were visiting in. Why? I'll tell you why. Because Community Baptist Church exists for the purpose of keeping people away from the great white throne judgment. That's the purpose of the church. We encourage parents. And I would say, parents, do you know your children's salvation experience? Do you know the details? Do you talk about it at home? Do you know how God worked in their lives? Sunday school teachers, Bible study fellowship teachers, ministry workers. Do you know the salvation testimony of the ones who are in the ministry that you're involved in? Do you know their testimony of being born again? Do you know the details, the story of their salvation? Do you talk about the experience? There's a new name written down in heaven. And it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. That became true in my life over 50 years ago as a teenager when I was on my knees in front of Bethlehem Baptist Church asking God to come into my life and save me from my sin. Listen, the church exists to keep people away from the great white throne judgment. It needs to be a top drawer issue with all of us that we're involved in getting the gospel to people who aren't saved. Because that's why the church exists. He said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Go out and take this message of salvation to every human being. Start in Jerusalem and saturate Jerusalem. Then move out into Samaria and saturate Samaria. And then go beyond Samaria and go to the uttermost part of the earth. I mean, saturate the world with the gospel that will keep people out of the great white throne judgment. Listen, if we can keep people out of the great white throne judgment, it was worth every hour you spent. It was worth all of the cost of being involved in church. It was worth all the cost of being a member of a team tasked with accomplishing the work of keeping people out of the great white throne judgment. You see, the return on investment makes the investment worthwhile. And one soul, one soul, Kept out of hell for eternity is worth whatever the cost that we would invest to be able to keep people out of that place. But there's a second place that looms out in front of people, and it's called the Bema Seat Judgment. 
We read about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8 to 11. And, and again, uh, the, the reference is there. don't have time to go into the details of it. But the, the Bema seat is a, it's a, a judgment seat. Uh, the Bema, the word Bema is a Greek word. And you find it in the reference that, that we've given you as translated as a judgment seat. It, it was simply... A, a elevated platform that a judge would sit on. Here's a picture of the Bema seat in Corinth. Uh, when we were there in Corinth uh, uh, with our group on a missions trip, if if, um, if we were to zoom back from that picture, you would see that we were there. We go. You'd see that we're looking. Uh, well, you probably it's hard for you to see, but those who were there will recognize it. Uh, that that is the main street through the old city of Corinth. By the way, the old city of Corinth is cool because it was torn down. At the end of the, uh, the New Testament era, it was torn down, it was leveled, and it was never rebuilt on that location. When they rebuilt the city of Corinth, they built it about five miles away. And then the archaeologists have been able to reconstruct the actual city of Paul's day. And that's the main street that leads to the Bema and beyond that to the Agora, the marketplace. And you go up those stairs and then you run into that platform with a pillar on top of it. That's the Bema seat. And that little plaque there, little white plaque, says Bema. It's the Bema seat. Paul stood there in Corinth. Paul was taken to that Bema seat. Paul was required to give an account for himself to the city elders, the rulers of the city of Corinth. And right behind the Bema seat is the Acropolis with their temple on top of it, where a thousand uh, female uh, uh, priestesses, uh, were employed to be able to engage in their immoral worship practices. And, and Paul started a church in this, in this licentious city. And there at the Bema seat, Paul stood and elevated above him were the leaders of the city of Corinth. He had to give an account for the, the, the things that he had done. Well, that's the terminology behind when Paul said, there's a bigger Bema seat coming for the believer. Because one day we're going to stand before God's Bema seat. And we're going to be brought up to the platform. And sitting on the platform is going to be God. And we're going to give an account to God for the life that we lived as a member of His team. And we're going to account for how we spent our time and investments of our life and our energy. We're going to be given an account for what kind of a team member we were. And what we invested in fulfilling the Great Commission in our day. And we're going to give an account at the Bema seat as we stand before uh, Jesus Christ. And the Bible describes that as giving an account for the way we lived our lives and what we did with our lives. Paul referred to this often in the letters that he wrote to the churches. He talked about this. But here's the deal. Is it worth it? All that we invest in church, is it worth it? If the church can spur you on and motivate you and encourage you and teach you how to live like Jesus Christ, when you stand before Him to give an account to Him for how you lived your life, you're going to be glad that you invested all that you invested as a team member forwarding the work of God on earth. You see, the church exists to keep unsaved people away from the great white throne judgment by preaching the gospel. 
And then once their names are written in the book and, and, and they become they're Christian people, they're living the Christian life, then the church exists to make you look good at the Bema seat. To make you look good when you stand before Jesus Christ. You know, if you're working in a business environment and you know you've got a year-end year accountability coming up and you're going to be going to some higher-ups and you're going to be given an account for what you did in the last year under the employment of the company and they're going to try to analyze whether you were worth the money they paid you. Did they get enough value from you to warrant the amount they paid you? And you're going to want to look as good as you possibly can in that meeting. And if anyone helps you prepare for that meeting, if anyone encourages you in what to do and decisions to make, and, 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 and you're going to be so grateful for the ones that help get you ready for that meeting. Because there's a lot weighing on that meeting. I want you to know that one day, we who are Christians are going to give an account to God at the Bema Seat Judgment. And we're going to stand before God. He told the church in Corinth, we're going to give an account for the things that we've done. According to whether it be good or bad, we're going to account for our life as a Christian. The church exists to help you get ready for that meeting. We want you to understand truth. We want you to understand doctrine. We want you to understand why we do what we do. We want you to understand what God expects. We want you to understand what it is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We want you to understand the character of God so that you can emulate the character of God. We want you to become holy even as He is holy. We want to teach you what to do. We want to motivate you and encourage you to grow in that direction. Why? Because we want you to look really good at the Bema Seat. And if Community Baptist Church can keep people out of hell, and if Community Baptist Church can help people look really good at the Bema seat, then Community Baptist Church will have been worth all of the investment that I have poured into it by way of time and energy and money and investment. Because the return on investment is going to be so profitable that the investment will be worth it all. You know, at the end of the conversation that Faithful and Christian had about shame, they were talking about shame's perspective. And, and shame, John Bunyan um, portrayed these, this shame guy as propagating the idea that you're wasting too much money you're wasting too much time. You're wasting too much energy on making church happen. And you ought to be ashamed at what you're doing. And John Bunyan was concerned about the impact of that on churches in Bedford and in, in, in England. And so he couched this character to try to warn Christians to not be shamed by the world. He saw the temptation coming from the world as possibly tempting Christians to go the way of the world, to become convinced, yeah, this is taking too much time. This does cost too much. This takes way too much energy. And you see, to go back to Ravi Zachariah, if we bought in, if church is for the purpose of entertainment, then I can just take whatever amount of entertainment I'm comfortable with and, and church has fulfilled its purpose for me. 
And if that's all church is, just a dog and pony show to give some people some entertainment and not to ground them in theology and doctrine and truth about God that causes them to invest their life and their energy and their resources to keep people out of hell and to help Christians look good at the Bema seat. If it's all just a show, it's not worth the investment. If it makes your conscience feel better, check off a box, you know, show up for something and click the box and feel better. But pour your life into it. Pour your energy into it. Make deep investments of energy and time. It may not be worth that. And so here's what Faithful said at the end. Faithful said this. He said, that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. He was quoting from Luke 16. He was saying, you know, shame, shame has a perspective. But shame's perspective is an abomination to God. He said, shame has described what men are about, not what God and his word are about. On judgment day, the spirit of this modern world is not what will award us with life or death. Rather, we will be judged by the wisdom and law of God. And here's Faithful's final conclusion. His final conclusion was, quote, What God says is best, even though all the world are against it. You see, a modern world thinks church is too costly. It asks too much of you. You ought to be ashamed, be incoherced. To give that kind of time and energy to a team. But from God's perspective, this is life and death for people who need to be reached with the gospel. And for those who are reached with the gospel, this is prep work to make you look really good at the Bema Seat Judgment. And that's worth a lot. Father.